Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our amazing celebrity guest is Bob Mesta, one of the co-architects of Jobs to be Done framework and the author of Learning to Build, which we are going to be discussing today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. It matches the complexity of your customer data, including many-to-many relationships between users and companies. Book your demo call today at userlist.com. Hi, Bob. Hi, Jane. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Uh, we couldn't be more thrilled, to be honest. But for those listeners who somehow haven't heard your name, can you uh, give us a primer on the framework yeah. and yourself? Yeah. So I guess uh, my mom would tell you I was an engineer out of the womb. I've been breaking things for over 50 years, been fixing things for uh, probably 45 years, but been building for my whole life. I've worked on over 3,500 different innovations. I've worked on everything from food products, uh, Pokemon Mac and Cheese, to Basecamp and uh, the Google Suite, to automotive cars and everything in between. So I'm very happy to be here and share my experience with uh, your audience. So our audience consists of designers and uh, SaaS people and a bit of marketers, I'm pretty sure. You have more than one book that could be useful to them. Can you share a few words about those? And then we can drill into more. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've written several different books, but the, the two books that would be most useful to your audience, one is called Learning to Build, which is I just uh, came out in September. And it's primarily geared to, to share my mentor's teachings to me about helping me become basically an innovator, as well as the, the, the thousands of people I've worked with and what I would say are kind of these hidden skills that they have. The other one, though, is called Demand Side Sales, which is uh, 101, which is really geared towards the notion of why do people buy? And if we understand why people buy, it makes it easier to sell. And how do we design the sales process to mimic how people want to buy? And so those two books are kind of the the real centerpieces for, for, I think, your audience. You have a pretty magical story and a (laughs) practice of counting down the days to your potential death and the way you live your life related to that. Yes. Tell us more. So one of my mentors is uh, Professor Dr. Clayton Christian, who was a Harvard Business School professor. And one of the things he has, uh, we, we had a very special uh, relationship where I had four hours a quarter for almost 27 years with no agenda, where we would sit down and just think and talk together. And one of the things he had talked about is how will you measure your life at, when you're at the end of your life? And for me, he would always say that it was like he'd never measure his life by the size of his bank accounts or the things that he had, but more the people he helped. And so I've adopted that over the last 10 years. And so to be honest, it's one of the reasons why I'm here is I want to be able to help as many people before I die. At the same time, the fact is I realize that uh, most people who are extremely productive have this notion that time is precious. So I created a, if you will, a time box for myself that's very emotional and very real to me. And that basically I have 1,800 and hold on, let me check. What did I say? 1,873 days left. And the notion is, is that my mom was a school teacher here in Detroit, Michigan, and she would always delay things till when she would retire. And then when she retired, just after she retired, she found out she had cancer and she died almost four months later. And so I took her birthday and her death day and added it to mine and said, like, if I 
know that I'm going to die on that day, what would I do differently? And so it forces me to make way better decisions and think about and think about things in a very, very different way. And so part of it is, for example, you know, if I, it's a little over five years and if I have five years left and I see my kids once a quarter, that means I would only see my kids 20 more times in my life. And so what I've done is I've changed that to where I see my kids is at least once a month or try to see them at least once a month. So now I have, instead of, you know, 20 times, I have almost uh, 60 times. And so it's that notion of being able to make decisions about things that are important to me in the real time. Thank you for sharing that personal <laughs> yeah. story. Yeah. And given that, how do you choose to spend your days these days? Yeah. What do you do mostly? Yeah, yeah. So I spend, a, so I still build product. We'll do about uh, 15 or so products this year. We have two of them, our own products. And then I teach a lot. So I teach uh, at, the, at the Kellogg School uh, in, at Northwestern University in Chicago in Evanston. And then I guest lecture, and then I, I'm writing books basically to get things out of my head and to kind of share with the world the, the things that I've learned along the way. I, would, I wouldn't say that I created them, but more of the fact is, is that, that I've, I've accumulated a lot of different skills and methods to help innovate, and I want to be able to kind of share them, pass them forward. There's this number of products you quote. And yeah. uh, a few years back, it was 3,200. These days, it's 3,500, and which means yeah. you're progressing at a pretty impressive yeah. speed. Yes. How do you calculate that? How do you keep track? And what kind of products are these? Yeah, so I'll say in the early days, a lot of it was automotive-type systems. So, and so in some cases, it would be within the car. You could say if that was one product, then that would probably take a lot of things out. But I worked on transmissions. I worked on seats. I worked on headliners. I worked on bearings. I worked on a whole bunch of different products very early in my career, almost almost a thousand, because I was in charge or I was basically at Ford Motor Company helping to cut back development time from 72 months to 36 months. And ultimately a lot of it is a, the components that go into a car. Then I worked in the food industry and I did a, a lot of different food products as well. And then from there I moved into software. And so I've done everything from and services. So I've done insurance, I've done healthcare, I've done uh, medical devices. I've done, you know, numerous things. Part of it gets back to a couple things. One is, is I was taught by my mentors these very fundamental skills so I could actually approach any problem almost the same way and solve it with very similar methods. And so, well, most people think about things being very, very specific to a, to a vertical of knowledge, let's say software, or it's not like food. But in my world, they're actually very, very similar. They're easy things to change. I can actually, I have lots of parameters to do it. I have to understand what the demand side looks like, et cetera. And so to me, uh, all problems kind of look the same or I have the same approach to, to going after them. There are a lot of listeners who are in the SaaS world here. So, and you have worked with software products. What does a typical consulting gig look like for you? Let's imagine there is a few, there are a few founders who have been working on a problem for three to five years and they're stuck on something. And now you come in and in two weeks you do something magical. What is that? <laughs> so I think part of it is, is that it starts with this notion of what I call the separation between the supply side and the demand side. And that the supply side is, you know, I, I, as an engineer, I feel like the greatest lie I was ever told was build it and they will come. Oh. And so <laughs> a lot of times we end up trying to build our stuff and then we have to go find of the 8 billion people in the world who needs it. So now we're pushing. And what I do is I kind of flip the lens on that and say, let me go find people who are struggling and say, all right, let me go find this, this body of people or this mass of people who are struggling. And then how do I aim? 
our technology to actually help them solve that struggle. And so it's flipping the lens uh, 180 degrees from kind of product push and trying to create more features and benefits to literally understanding kind of the progress people are trying to make, why they pull it in their lives, and how do I reduce the friction to, to make that, to, to enable them to make that progress. That sounds very theoretical. <laughs> like, do you actually get to interview people? Do you work with existing material? What does it look like? Yep, yep. So I work with a company called Intercom. Are you guys familiar with Intercom at all? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, so I worked with Intercom back in 2014 and since. But Intercom's whole initial premise was uh, they were they were frustrated about basically having, you know, basically all these different databases of when they did a software startup and none of it being connected. And so the whole premise was we're going to put all the data in one place. So whether it's chat or email or uh, help tickets or, or CRM, it's all in one database that actually then pulls so you don't have to worry about kind of trying to connect the data later. And so when they went out to do this, they started in 2010. By 2013, it had kind of stalled out. So we went off and did some interviews around basically understanding, you know, basically why do people hire Intercom? And it turned out there were four very, very different jobs. One was people are coming to the site, but they're not converting. So help me, help me engage people, right? Or uh, help me, you know, convert, if you will. The other one is that people are coming, but the fact is, is they're, they're having a hard time actually using it on a regular basis. So how do we help uh, people engage? Another one was, how do I learn where people are, are struggling so I can build new features? And the other one was what, about help me fix support. And by separating those four pathways out, those four jobs to be done out, and then understanding kind of the context people were in and the outcome they wanted, we, they were able to kind of ch uh, change the way they actually went from one product to actually uh, to a platform that had four different products and ultimately be able to, to uh, scale the business. And so from there, they, went, they, they grew almost 15x in revenue, 5x in customers. And you know, now they, you know, in March of what, 18, they had a $1.25 billion valuation. And part of it was that whole notion of just switching the lenses and seeing what the demand side really was thinking about and why people were really hiring them. It's kind of pretty magical because our company, UserList, was conceived in 2017 as an alternative to Intercom. So the information you just shared isn't just uh, fun to listen to, it's also pretty useful. Yep. What do you say of, of what Intercom looks like today? <laughs> you know, yeah, to <laughs> so what's interesting is over the, over the years, they, they've changed their positioning a little bit, but um, they, they actually moved, they, 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 they have three primarily. How do we engage? How do we actually support better? And how do we actually learn? And so you start to realize that Though it's changed a little bit over the over the years, the six years it's it's actually when they moved away from it, uh, the the velocity changed, and so they moved back to it in 2019, and it's still growing today. And the interesting part is they have adopted the whole notion of where are the struggling moments of our customers, and they're all new feature sets are based on struggling moments of like in the past that customers would have that we can then address. So it's not just coming up with ideas of what to do; it's actually focusing on where people are are either wanting to do something and they can't, or the fact is, is that, that it's a problem that they don't actually blame Intercom for. And so they're constantly looking for struggling moments, and that's, where they're, uh, that's how they innovate. So going back to your book, Learning to Build, it's the key teachings from your mentors, and you outline the five qualities, or is it five skills or five? Uh, yeah, skills. I think of them as skills because I think they're learner, <laughs> learnable. I think they're learnable. Like, I don't think people... I think almost everybody has these skills, but true innovators and entrepreneurs are like, 
10x better at these skills than most pe everyday people. And so I think it's a skill that you can learn and hone and refine over time as opposed to you're born an innovator, you're not. Give us an overview of these and let's not try to replicate the book on audio, but just to have an idea of what we're discussing here. Yeah, yeah. so the, this really, the book starts with the, the whole notion that, you know, I was illiterate, so I'm uh, dyslexic, so I can't read and write. And so for the most part, when I went off to college or basically when I graduated from high school, they told me I should be a baggage handler at the airport. And my mom, who was, was very, very uh, persuasive, uh, taught me that even though I might not be able to read, I can do other things, which is I'm very good at math. And so ultimately, uh, these, you know, I, I've, I've been through my life, I'm almost 60. And, and it's the point where I've reflected on my life. And I said, Okay, how did I get these? How did I get here? And so as I look back, and I look at my mentors, uh, and, and the, the four, there's lots of mentors, but I'll say there's four key ones who basically helped me learn a bunch of skills that enable me to do all this kind of work, and to teach me how to think, to be honest. And so Dr. W. Edward Deming, who was the father of quality in Japan in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I met him when I was 18 years old. He was 85. Um, he was one of my first mentors. And then there was Genichi Taguchi, who is the father of robust design and, and, uh, and I've won the Deming Prize in Japan, I think, four or five times. It's just amazing. I worked with him for almost seven years. And then Dr. Willie Moore, who was my first uh, boss at Ford. She was a PhD in particle physics and she was one really tasked with developing, developing products faster. And so she taught me so much. And then uh, Dr. Clayton Christensen. And so the four of them taught me these skills, though I didn't, they didn't know it explicitly. So the five skills are this. One is empathetic perspective. The ability to see things from other people's perspective, emotionally detached. So they can see it from the finance perspective. They can see it from the science perspective. They can see it from the macro perspective. They can see it from the micro perspective. But they can do that and almost walk around a problem or a situation and see things very differently. The second one is uh, what I call uncovering demand. They realize that demand is not created by supply, but cre demand is created by struggling moments. And if we can uh, find people's struggling moments, we then can actually build better product. And so really good innovators and entrepreneurs know how to study struggling moments and uncover demand. The third one is uh, all of them, and pretty much anybody I've ever worked with who's a really good innovator has something called causal structures. They, they, they have a world that's based on cause and effect. They understand cause and effect, and they don't believe in randomness. And they, they, they understand that how they understand, they have a curiosity about how things work. And, and want to understand how things work and want to uncover it, right? The fourth one is, it's a very interesting one. It seems to be the hot topic now, which is what I call prototyping to learn. So one of the things that, that, you know, very early on, I was always taught to form a hypothesis and test hypotheses. And Dr. Taguchi would talk about, no, you know, most of the time we need to test because we don't know so we can form hypotheses. And so he taught me a whole set of methods around designed experiments to literally let the, let the product tell me what's best as opposed to let me theorize what's best and do it. And so it's this whole aspect of how do we actually use contrast to create meaning to understand how things work. And then the last one is this notion of being able to make trade-offs, identifying and making trade-offs. This skill is really about most people try to optimize something and they end up either taking too much time or too much money or they over-engineer the product. And so part of it is actually understanding what are the right trade-offs to make and, and I think Jason Fried said it best is, you know, you're better off with a kick-ass half than a half-ass whole. 
right? And so how do we actually oh. <laughs> figure that part out, right? So... I started reading your book a few moments before our episode, and there was yeah. this uh, fascinating story about the car mirrors that were cracking in the frames. Yeah. I didn't find the closing of that story. Yes. Was it about making frameless mirrors, or was my guess wrong? No, Just tell your me. guess was wrong. Your guess was <laughs> wrong. So part of it was is that they were trying to actually reduce the cost without basically, like the easiest solution was to actually change the material. And it would have cost us almost 50 cents more a mirror. And so the thing that they gave me the task of is how do I actually make the mirror case that we have work in the face of all these, these noise factors or things that we can't control, like the humidity and the temperature, et cetera. And so you start to realize like there's ways in which to fix things that don't require you to spend money. And so the easiest thing is, like you said, to go to a frameless mirror, but at some point there still has to be something that holds the glass. And part of it was that that glass was uh, the case itself was expanding and contracting and that's ultimately what was causing the problem and how do i actually make that less sensitive to the temperature of the and the humidity of of where the mirror is and so ultimately that's how we fixed it was by changing the, the parameters on the injection molding machine as opposed to having to go back and redesign the entire product which saved us a lot of time and a lot of money among those five qualities the trade-offs one is really not talked about much, but the whole business world is about making compromise on everything, basically. Right. It's always limited resources, isn't it? So yeah, so what's interesting is, is I don't look at trade-offs as compromises. I look at trade-offs are the things that we don't really need to be that good at. And so what happens is, is compromises are when I have two things that are actually equally important. How do I make sure I deliver on those? Most people say, well, We'll compromise on that. I, I'm not talking about that kind of compromise. I'm talking about the fact that, like, you know, there are certain products where at some some point in time they're they're not great at everything, but at the same time, the fact that they're they're great on the important things. So if we go back and look at the iPhone, you know, the iPhone was really at the at the very origin of it. It was really about converting, you know, basically an iPod, a telephone, and a uh, and a PDA into one device. And so it was, in this case, it was about actually having things good enough, right? But it didn't have any texting capability, to be honest. They had to add iMessage later. And so you start to realize, like, at some point, they, they, had, they knew what the value proposition needed to be, and they were willing to make the trade-off to launch it without great battery life and to launch it without, you know, basically texting. So, but those are things they could work on. And so it's very different than kind of trying to compromise, but more about What's the, it's bringing time into it to say, what are the important things to launch now? And then what do we need to actually constantly add to build a wave of, of features that basically then will, will help us go from an iPhone you know, 3 to an iPhone 4 to an iPhone 5. And so ultimately, Apple has looked at products like that for forever, where they look at what are the struggling moments. And if you look at the evolution of the product line, it's all gone towards addressing basically everything from you know, it wasn't the screen was too small to making it bigger to then fixing the battery life to then fixing the camera. And right now, I'd say Apple owns the camera market. I vividly, vividly recall moments in my life when I didn't own any Apple devices, but I first touched the iPad when it just yeah. came out. And yeah. when I first touched, I think it was iPhone 4 with the Retina display, I was yes. blown away with the Retina display as a designer. It was Right. <laughs> but but this is the thing is that, again, it's it, like, to be honest, launching it without the retina display made people actually value the retina display when it got there. And so this is the point is that it's not about it's not about trade offs like you're not going to do it. It's a question of sequencing things in terms of figuring out what 
what are the right set of features to launch now? Too many people want to load everything in and they think every feature is equally important. And that's just not true. So compromise is better phrased as between these two equal features, you just decide what's more important and you focus on that. That's like... <laughs> yeah, so this is, but this is, where, this is where context creates value is that in one context, this feature might be actually really more important. And in another context, that other feature might be important. So maybe we need two products. And so part of it is actually understanding the differences between those things and when do we need two products and when do we need one. And so I always say context creates value and contrast creates meaning. You're basically the author, one of the co-architects of Jobs to be Done framework. Does it feel like the core skill to being a practitioner is interviewing customers all the time? But it feels that when you come in as a consultant, you're not interviewing dozens of customers every time. Uh, do you feel like it's more about the mindset than about the research skills? What is mindset versus research? The, the reason why the research is so powerful is because it digs down to the what I call the, the causal mechanisms, the underlying thing of what happens to people and what do they believe and what, what are they hoping for in the progress and in, in the progress they're trying to make. And so ultimately, when I understand that it's about being in this situation and wanting these outcomes, that's actually extremely reproducible. And so I don't need a lot of data. I don't need a lot of you know, interviews to actually uncover it, to be honest, it's 10 to 12 at most. And I can start to, you can start to see patterns and I'm building this. I have some software right now that I've been building to actually show people how to do that. But then you can use quantitative to size, but the most part is you can actually see this very, very easily with less than, you know, 10 or less than 10 or 10 or less interviews. Right. And so part of this is to realize when you get it to be understand causation, meaning they're in this situation. So again, what causes somebody to go back to school, for example, right? Typically when people have, they have a, a I'll say an hourly type job, they're, they're basically now have responsibility. They might've tried to school before, but that didn't work. But now that they have a kid or they're taking care of a parent or that somebody is counting on them, they now have more motivation. And ultimately they don't want to go to school to go to school sake. They want to go to school to get a better job. And so once I know those fe features, or th those facts about them, it becomes really easy to then say, how do I design the, the curriculum for them? And so ultimately, that's what Paul LeBlanc did to basically uh, take, his, take his college from you know, about 500 online students to 200,000 online students. It's that basic premise, but it didn't take a lot of interviews to find it. It takes basically a lot of work to build it. Let's talk about the demand side of, of the equation. I guess that kind of segues into the whole book you have on that, demand side sales. In theory, it sounds fantastically well that you have a product that uh, solves an existing product problem and people are looking for a solution actively and they find your product and the magic happens. You're pulled instead of pushing the boulder up the hill, as we all do. That does not work all the time in reality if you try to replicate this kind of thing. Because there's some very vivid examples when there's a struggling market and then you're suddenly coming in and solving it and then it's amazing and you're captured, et cetera. But there are a lot of grayscale situations when, yes, there is a need, but people are only looking for a new solution every five years. So like it's the market exists, but it's very well sort of stagnating or something. And a few other situations. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is where I think the fact is, is that 
people are only looking for something new when they struggle with what they already have. Mm-hmm. And so my aspect is, is it's not every five years. It might be that it has to build up every five years. So there's a company here in the U.S. called Casper, and they build mattresses. And they were basically were not in the business at all. They were actually a supplier in the business. And they went off and said, how do we actually go into this market that's like a $6 billion market and very well established and very, very much, you know, kind of uh, they're an outsider to it. And they, but they actually understand the consumer better than anybody. And they start to actually say, well, it's not about actually the mattress. It's about buying the mattress. So they changed the whole way in which people buy mattresses from being online to vacuum seal it, to ship it to your house. And it shows up. And next thing you know, all of a sudden, the fact is, is there are a billion dollars in the market. And it had nothing to do with their beds were being better. It was the fact that buying it was actually the easier way to buy it. And so part of this is to realize, like, at some point in time, just because you have a better product doesn't mean people are going to buy it. It's about the entire experience they have in terms of looking, shopping, deciding, choosing, you know, pulling the new one in, getting rid of the old one. That's sometimes why a lot of times people will buy it has nothing to do you know, a, a mediocre product with a, with a great experience wrapped around it could actually outperform something that is, is technically way better. And so you, you, you see that happen more time and time again, where, again, being an engineer, I was taught that I should always build the best product. And what I realized is that at some point I can build a kick-ass half as opposed to a half-ass whole. And so and I, I could say <laughs> there's example after example where that's true. And, and so part of this is being able to understand the demand side and and what is the real criteria they have for hiring your product? So jobs to be done is that premise of people don't buy products, they hire them to make progress in their, in their life. And so if we can actually understand the progress people are trying to make, it then realizes the things we need to do, but also the things we don't need to do. Are you actually watching the modern software market in, in a way that you could name some interesting products that really fascinate you with the way they approached new markets or existing problems, et cetera. Give, give me an example. What do you, who do you, like, uh, who do you mean? Companies like... Like, like Slack was a, dis- a disruptor in their ages, a disruptor of like yep. office chat. They did something that definitely existed before, but in a yep. very nice way. Intercom yep. was a disruptor in a certain yep. way, right? Yep. I, I, I think of, yeah, I think of, there's a couple things. One is people who are really focused on a big struggling moment. So like, I think real-time communication and people using text, I think Slack was better than text, right? And so what you started to realize is that it was a way in which to kind of categorize and build streams of, of conversations of where it was, what was going on. And I think that people were using other forms beforehand, but the fact is, is what Slack did is it allowed people to organize it and then be able to uh, kind of have real-time conversations um, because they were uh, either distant or they were remote. And so I think things like Basecamp is, is another good example where you know they're not tra- trying to build the best project management software. They're trying to build project collaboration. And what they, were, they would th- say their bigger competitor is email more than it is Microsoft Project. So it's the project that you have that you still try to run through email, which is too hard. And that was the whole premise of building, if you will, kind of how people were started to use Basecamp. So I think there's, you know, a, a lot of people have basically that. So I work with a, a, a Intuit, which built QuickBooks, right? And QuickBooks was actually hatched from the notion of what we call the anomalies of people, small businesses using a Quicken, which is a personal finance product. And it was literally half the features of a full blown accounting package, but it was actually 
twice the price. And so you start to realize like at some point, nobody loves QuickBooks, but in the end, it does the job very, very well. And it's almost 9 billion in revenue. And so it's one of those companies that has just so much, you know, it's like, like it doesn't, it doesn't fit the mold because that most people say, I got to build a product that everybody loves. There isn't anybody who loves QuickBooks, but yet everybody uses it. Do you have a story or the background information of how QuickBooks went to market with their solution that became so yeah. successful? So one of the things is that they, they, they realized that one is that what QuickBooks was competing with was hiring somebody else, not a better software package, because at some point they wanted it simple enough that the owner could use it, right? So they didn't have to hire somebody else, but, but at least sophisticated enough that the accountant could do the taxes. And so it turned out that they, they only actually advertised two features, how to get paid better and how to pay vendors, because those were the two single biggest problems that most small businesses had. And then once they came in, they actually then knew that they'd have a payroll problem or they might have a, a, a check writing problem or, or all these different things. And so in the end, every solving one struggling moment usually actually creates a new struggling moment. So one of the things that you can realize is like at QuickBooks is that they're a software company, but they print over $650 million worth of checks a year. They don't want to do that, but they realize if they don't do it, their, their, their user base will actually struggle. So they actually print checks. That's a fascinating story. You work a lot with both physical products and, and software. What do you yeah. think two industries can borrow from one another, each other? <laughs> I think one of the things is, is in hard good industries or, or things where we make physical products is that because it's so expensive to do so, people actually are allowed to have more time to think. But in industries where it's very easy to change, People don't spend as much time thinking, they spend more time changing. And so we like A-B testing or like one factor at a time thing. And so what you realize is that I think the software industry has grown up in a way that it's, it's going to mature. But if you think about the productivity of a, of a programmer, right, the thing is, is most people here in the web, we, we end up talking about, you know, the productivity is how much code they write. And what I want to know is how much code do they write that ends up in the final code? And so ultimately, the fact is right now, I, I, I believe the number is in like the 80 percentile of rework or scrap, like most code that's written doesn't get used. And so what we have to do is start to give programmers uh, more space and time to understand the problem better so they can actually develop less code, but higher quality code. And I think that's where that's one of the things that the software industry can, can learn is that to, to give you space and time to think. The problem is most people, when you give them time, they don't know what to think about. And so that's really what this book is, is how do we start to think through some of these issues in a bigger way? Going back to learning to build, you've mentioned yeah. four mentors that were influential in your life. If you were to start from scratch with no mentors, how would you go and find those role models slash yeah. teachers slash someone to teach you. Yeah. So, so I, I've actually thought a lot about this is that like, I'm not sure Deming would even remember my name, not because it, but he was also a little old and he had met so many people, but like I spent some time with him, but he was, meant a lot to me, but I'm not sure I meant a lot to him where I think with Clay, I was able to spend a lot of time with him and we, we would know each other and he, he will, he will recognize me when we get together later. I think the whole the, the aspect here is to me is, is the number one thing I would say is how do you help the mentor? Like, like the thing that I set out to do is how do I help Deming do what he wanted to do? How do I help Taguchi do what he wanted to do? And by helping them do that, they ended up tell, teaching me everything that they knew. And so the first thing I would say is like, 
the way I met Clay was I literally walked into his office and asked, asked him one question, how can I help you? And he just looked at me, dumbfounded, and kind of said, you know, I've been here for two months or two years. And, and to be honest, you're the first person to come in and ask me how, you know, who, uh, who, who could help me. Everybody else is always at, coming into my office asking me for help. And so it was the whole thing of reversing that role is how I would go about doing that. And so typically that's how I find, you know, I still have mentors. I still have coaches. I still have people who help me all the time. But ultimately, I always start with the premise of how can I help you just like we started this podcast, like, how can I help your audience? And, and if I start with that premise, then I'll actually, by helping you, I'll, I'll learn as well. Is this one of the rewarding parts of being a teacher is you start to realize is that when I teach, I actually learn as much, if not more about the students that, than they learn about my topics. Do you feel like that is only possible through one-on-one -on -one or like personal conversations versus consuming what there is out there in the internets. You know, there's so many books and so many yep. things you can just do one-sided learning from. It really gets back to you as a person of what you're trying, what progress you're trying to make. Because I think there are people who see Tony Robbins or Gary Vee or any of these other people and, and they would say he's a mentor, but they've he's never met them. So I, I think the fact is, is if you're getting knowledge from them and you're doing something and you're and you're using them as a role model, My belief is that that they are mentoring you, whether you meant the whether you meant them face to face or not. But as a mentor, I feel like what's most valuable to me is one on one. And so, one of the reasons why I'm kind of writing the books is that is that kind of give people that that on ramp to kind of get to me to be able to figure out how to help make progress. And so, so ultimately, I don't like this. The, the books are almost like the basic knowledge. They're like the, the the cost of entry. You almost have to know it really, really well for me to to mentor you. Does the book uh, have a roadmap on how to master those five skills that you're mentioning? Yeah. So in, in the in the end chapter, I talk about the jobs of the book. Like, what progress are you trying to make by reading the book? And I I had it at the beginning, but I put it at the end. But it also has something called an interrelationship diagram, where it talks about which skills. Like, first of all, I think at the very end, I talk about everybody has these skills as they think about planning a vacation, uh, buying groceries. You use all five of these skills all the time, right? And so part of it is, is where's the one where you need to get better at and how do you actually understand its implication to the rest of them? And because they're very interdependent, the, the better I have empathetic perspective, the better I can interview and uncover demand, right? And the better I have empathetic perspective, the better I can actually make trade-offs. And so you start to realize like that there's skills that have um, almost foundational, more, more foundational uh, aspects than, than others. But for the most part, like the whole aspect gets back to where are you and what skills are you good at and what skills do you want to develop? As we're wrapping up today's episode, what would be one piece of advice that you would, could give to our listeners that they could go and implement today? Yeah. So I think there's a couple things. I think one of the big ones is Most people can't admit they don't know. And that Dr. Taguchi would always say, there's way more unknown in the world than there is known and never forget it. And, and the reason why that's so important is I think a lot of times we end up hypothesizing or thinking about what we should build next. And I think the notion of prototyping to learn is really, really important to actually understand, you know what, we have to build things to actually see how they work as opposed to things just working theoretically of how we imagine them to. And so if anything, learning learning how to discover, learning how to actually uh, find anomalies. Um, I think anomalies is the richest place for real innovation of where people are using your product where they shouldn't, 
or in some cases, like an intercom, like it wasn't designed to help people with support, but it turns out that a lot of people were using it for that. And so you start to realize the anomalies actually help you see new parts of the business. And so understanding where anomalies come from, where the struggling moments are, and, and realize that there is way more unknown than there is known. How do we innovate in that space? It actually makes you way more comfortable to kind of like go out into the world and experiment. Thank you so much for the insightful interview, Bob. That was fantastic. Where can people find your book and most importantly, other things you did uh, online? Yep. Uh, mostly Amazon. So you can find the books Learning to Build and Demand Side Sales on, on Amazon. Um, I've also written a book called Choosing College, which was based on some work we did with uh, Paul LeBlanc, but also uh, with Michael Horn about what, what, how do people, what job do people hire higher education for? And then I have the Jobs to Be Done Handbook with uh, Chris Speck. Uh, all that's on Amazon. The other thing is to follow me on LinkedIn. I typically post everything up there, all the podcasts, everything that I'm on. And uh, that's where that's my main channel. Twitter, I'm at BMESTA, B-M-O-E-S-T-A. And then uh, the name of my firm is TheRewiredGroup.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. And uh, good luck with the book. Uh, have yep. an amazing rest of your week. Thank you, Jane. You too.